The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield, your number one news and talk station. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. The ANC has fired President Jacob Zuma. It's just uh, not told him as to when it expects him to vacate the office. So we'll talk about that in some detail this evening. A great quote from someone on Twitter as to what's been happening in Cape Town, according to Daniel on the SMS line this evening. One ends, R-E-I-G-N, ends, and another rain R-A-I-N, begins. The heavens in Cape Town symbolically washing away the layer of dirt that has settled on our beautiful country. That is according to Daniel on our SMS line this evening. We are doing lots on the money show this evening. Water is a big subject of discussion uh, this evening. The Bottled Water Association joining us at half past seven to talk about that. Our Africa Business Report, Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. And in a moment, Gideon Rahman, who is Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent and Columnist at the Financial Times. Uh, He'll give us his perspective on today's developments with the ANC and President Jacob Zuma. He's written a fabulous column as to why South Africa still holds a perhaps disproportionately large say in the world that we live in. Plus, uh, an economic perspective with the Standard uh, Bank Chief Economist Gulam Balim and Muletsi Mbeki, former first brother Muletsi Mbeki this evening. His perspective on today's actions uh, on The Money Show. The Money Show. Your number one news and talk station. A fast-back question for you this evening on 31702 and 31567. If you think you know the answer to the fast fact, send us an SMS. Who is threatening an advertising ban against Facebook and Google? Who is threatening an advertising ban on Facebook and Google? That's your fast fact question this evening here on The Money Show. Chief Foreign Affairs commentator with the Financial Times, Gideon Rachman. Gideon, I really enjoyed your column about South Africa and why it still holds so much sway in the world and why the world still cares as to what happens with South Africa, even though, as you put it, where things are, are, are relatively humdrum. If it's humdrum, I mean humdrum locally, but if South Africa's gone humdrum after the Mandela Mirror, why does the world still care about us? Well, I think it's partly actually a legacy of the whole Mandela miracle. You've got to realize that people of my age, I'm in my sort of mid-50s now, grew up in a period when South Africa was in the headlines, the world headlines, all the time because of the struggle against apartheid and then the, the drama of the story of Mandela. So that kind of lodged it in people's minds. And then I think it post-apartheid South Africa became... Perhaps slightly oddly, but uh, an informal spokesman for the whole continent. You know, South Africa is the only African country on the G20. It's the uh, got the highest per capita income of any large African country. It's got a sophisticated economy. It's it's somewhere that, where that feels like kind of safe Africa to the rest of the world. So when they want to put a World Cup in Africa, they choose South Africa. So it's got a very high profile, and I think people look at the fortunes of South Africa as uh, you know, in a way, a leading indicator for the whole continent. I mean, and also the, the the damage that President Jacob Zuma has done to the image of South Africa over a period of time, which has put us as something of a basket case relative to the potential that Mandela present, represented. Um, he hasn't managed to erode that completely, not just yet anyway. No, I don't think so. I mean, of course, you know, I, I was just in South Africa and I was kind of impressed by... Obviously, the drama of the situation, but also the fact that something you cannot take for granted in the rest of Africa, you have an incredibly vigorous free press. You know, every second book in the airport is about Zuma and what a disaster <laughs> he is. Uh, so 
you know, it, it's that that is in a way quite encouraging. Although obviously the content of what Zuma did has been damaging to to South Africa's image in this environment, and things like power cuts, the headlines about Cape Town possibly running out of water, all the kind of stuff about corruption, which plays into unfortunate stereotypes about you know what Africa inverted is going to be like. Yeah, it has been damaging to to, to the image of South Africa, no doubt about it. I mean, lots of people are really frightened of a Mobutu or a Mugabe sort of scenario for South Africa and that vigorous sense of democracy playing itself out over the last two years in South Africa. And while Jacob Zuma may be painted universally as a villain, you do point out that he hasn't resorted to the sort of political brutality um, that, that others have done. No, absolutely. I mean, you look at, well, obviously, next door, Mugabe, uh, you know, started with, with mass political violence. It was very early into his period in office. And the kind of uh, decline that you saw in Zimbabwe, both in terms of the brutality visited on the opposition, on the free press, hyperinflation, South Africa's still a very, very long way from that. But I think one of the things that struck me is that, you know, in a few years ago, people who talked about the Zimbabweization of South Africa were generally regarded as, you know, out of touch or uh, so on. And, and I was struck that, you know, even quite kind of sensible South Africans would begin to sort of in recent years say, well, you know, if things really go bad, that it, that could be the kind of fate that we face. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, South Africa is still a very long way from that. But I think people were alarmed, obviously are alarmed, by the direction that the country was drifting in during the Zuma years. As somebody whose voice is recognised as a voice of sanity and reason in the world of global business... Um, that's so kind of you. Um, that's what I'm told anyway. That's what people say about you. Yeah. Um, postponement by the ANC, delaying the inevitable. President Jacob Zuma, if he does drag out his sacking, and it's almost been handed to him on a plate as to he, he can choose the day of his departure, that's the way it stands at the moment. Does it make a difference whether he takes a day or a week in your eyes? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think if it turns into a very long, drawn-out political crisis, which then leads to uncertainty and a sense that, well, maybe there won't be a real transition uh, and that the kind of, some of the legacy of the Zuma years will drag on or, or indeed there'll be kind of a paralysis at the centre of government, that would be damaging. But a week, a day, even a month, you know, as long as there's a sense that a new broom in the form of Ramaphosa is coming in and that South Africa has a chance for a fresh start, I think people will be happy with that. Gideon Rachman, thank you. On the line to us from London, the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator with the Financial Times. Listening to that, Mouletzi Mbeki, businessman, political analyst, former first brother. Uh, Mouletzi Mbeki on the Money Show this evening. Uh, the Mbeki household, we know the Mbeki Foundation, delighted um, and uh, encouraging President Jacob Zuma to go to the Speaker of Parliament post-haste and hand in his resignation. But as political analyst Mouletzi Mbeki, how are you reading the tea leaves on this one? <laughs> well, I, I watched the uh, the press conference with the ANC Secretary General, and I, I was quite taken aback when he told me that uh, Zuma has done nothing wrong, and uh, so they just want him to make way for their new leader, which is Cyril Ramaphosa. Now, I mean, I thought that was very childish. You can't remove the president of of the state of South Africa just because you have a new leader of the ANC. Remember, the president of South Africa is elected by parliament, not elected by the ANC. Uh, but that, so that I, happened, I that, that, that's exactly what mm -hmm. happened to your brother, however, there's president. Yeah, well, I, I can't talk about the past. I'm talking mm -hmm. about what the ANC said today. They yeah. said that Zuma has done nothing wrong, mm -hmm. 
but they want to remove him because they have a new friend called Cyril Ramaphosa, who they think he should be president of South Africa. That's hardly a good reason to, to, to remove a president of a country who, who, who has been elected by his country's parliament according to the constitution of his country. Tell me how this plays out then over the next couple of days, Muleti Mbeki. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, he, he has said that Zuma has told them that he, he won't resign. He needs three to six months, so I guess he will repeat that. And then they have, the ANC will presumably go to the EFF and ask to partner with the EFF uh, in a vote of no confidence. Do you agree with Gideon Rahman that if it takes a, a day, a week or a month, it doesn't really matter as long as there is a sense of transition? <laughs> no, 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 he's wrong. I was in London at the beginning of December talking to investors. Uh, I'm looking for money for my for a steel project, they said they are not investing in South Africa. So a month or two won't change their attitude towards South Africa. What will? What will change? A thorough, thorough exposition of how the ANC, as an institution, has been uh, condoning uh, corruption. Starting with the abolition, with the dismantling of the Scorpions at Polokwane, by the ANC itself. It wasn't Zuma who dismantled the Scorpions. Second, uh, I mean, you can go through, there are so many, uh, there's a chain which makes sense. Until we realize that this is an institutional and systemic cor- corruption, instead of looking for scapegoats, the, the investors will not believe us because they know it's systemic. And that is the big risk. Mouletti Mbeki, thank you, the businessman and political analyst. Uh, before him, Gideon Rahman, the chief foreign affairs commentator with the Financial Times. Gulam Balim is the chief economist at Standard Bank. The, the currency was eager to break stronger. And as the, the, the fact that there was no deadline put on the president's departure, Gulam, um, we saw the, the rand retrace a little bit. There is nervousness in markets. There's a little anxiety to the extent that we've had compelling indications over the last month that political capital is beginning to be garnered by Sura Maposa. And one of the key data points would be clearly the um, stepping down of the apex individual with regard to the edifice that has surrounded President Zuma in recent years. But my sense is that I think we've probably being caught too closely in the center of the spider's web. It's just a matter of time, meaningful time, that I think that the president will step down, that the cabinet will be, that Sora Maposa will launch a more meaningful assault on corruption. And dare I say finally, although not exhaustively, that we will have the semblance of traction in reframing a back. And I think those will be the key data points that continues to keep the moodless that we've witnessed so far buoyant and cements our belief in uh, the reform process unfolding. A cabinet meeting tomorrow postponed. State of the nation last week postponed. Surely we can't postpone the budgets which is scheduled and and written in blood uh, for next Wednesday. Indeed, so February is only anchored by the certainty of Valentine's Day. Everything else seems (laughs) to be fluid. And, And so the SONA is the policy statement upon which the income and balance sheets income statement and balance sheet of the state 
uh, is then expressed through the budget statement, which is scheduled to be delivered in a little bit more than a week's time. So, in fact, there remains an element of fluidity. When will the SONA be delivered? Uh, clearly, we've already garnered indications that it will be delivered by Sir Ramaphosa. And in that respect, I think we can look to his January 13th ANC birthday statement when we glean quite a a substantial insight into the measure of the man. I won't go into the great length for the sake of brevity, but with a very comforting, pragmatic, and certainly uh, reformist agenda that he laid there. So I think SONA will have certainly echoes of that. Um, and then and then we wait for the budget to be released. But in a sense, we know the budget is going to be a mammoth fiscal hump uh, in terms of the fiscal corrections that need to be injected so as to uh, set the budget again on a path of fiscal consolidation. Does it matter who presents the budget? I mean, the budget must happen next Wednesday. We, do we agree on that? I think it is important. Mm. You know, we are reminded from time to time that the sovereign rating agencies judge a nation on two elements. One is the will to pay your bills, to settle your debts. Other is the ability. Now, if you consider that when... Praveen Gordon, the former finance minister, was removed from office a little less than a year ago. Um, It triggered ratings downgrades. In other words, the signal surrounding the will towards uh, broad fiscal consolidation had been dealt a hammer blow. So I would certainly and very vigorously argue that personality, the leadership does matter in terms of signaling to investors, to rating agents, to society at large, that there won't be a relaxation of the fiscal levers to the point of recklessness. So the personality does matter. Um, And, of course, uh, the underlying statement. So, you know, it would be welcome if we had a statement that is going to be material in the fiscal corrections. And, you know, there would be a margin of premium to be had additionally if the individual rendering the budget had the underlying innate confidence of the public, of rating agencies, of investors. If we still have President Jacob Zuma hanging on to the presidency on Tuesday night, do we postpone the budget on Wednesday? I think that um, you probably will have a situation where at some point in time government must continue. Um, To the extent that if it is gleaned that President Jacob Zuma is shedding the last bit of executive authority imbued in his office, uh, perhaps then the budget can go ahead. Of course, it would be elegant if he steps aside. It would be elegant if we had a new cabinet, if the SONA was read uh, with the full political capital uh, surrounding uh, President, uh, well, incumbent Deputy President Sura Maposa. And South Africa had clearer sense that there would not be policy retracement. There would not be Sura Maposa execution failure, which would always be a peripheral concern while... President Jacob Zuma continues to be a halo figure hanging around. Gulam Balem, Chief Economist at Sana Bank. Before that, you heard the voice of Mueletzi Mbeki and uh, Gideon Rachman at the Financial Times. The Money Show. The Markets. Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Do great things. Uh, welcome to the Money Show this evening. Wayne McCurry from Ashburton is tonight's market commentator. Market didn't, not. I don't think it hated the fact that there was yet another postponement. No, so I no, guess no. It, there's, there's a relief that there is a slow and steady progress. Look, at the end of the day, the market expected President Zuma to be recalled the day that, that 
that that Cyril won the ANC electric conference mm-hmm. because it was inevitable. You know, no matter what the spin is and no matter what's in the public forum, no politician makes life easy for their political enemies. Politics is a cutthroat game. It's you brutal. destroy your enemies as quickly as possible. Yeah, most certainly. Uh, one of the great uh, one of the great embarrassments of the Zoom administration is unemployment going from 20 yes. to 27%. There was a slight improvement in the last quarter of yeah. last year, and people were getting very excited yeah, about it. Numbers. But it's people getting hired to do peace jobs. Yeah, and it's also the denominator change because people, more yeah. people just physically gave up looking for work. And uh, So in other words... It, we mustn't, no mistaking it's good news, but it's not material. And unfortunately, we've still got a very, very long way to go to sort that out. But any progress down that path is most welcome, and that's what's happening now. Mm-hmm. And we will have a better year this year than the last two years. But we're seeing great results coming through. I mean, yes. Adcock Ingram seems to be turning a corner, yeah, much a little better bit of, numbers. A little bit of a turnaround event, so yeah. But, but yes, very good numbers. Certainly, companies done well under new stewardship there. And Comair flying high, forgive me. Comair doing very well. <laughs> um, they had um, low oil prices, which is good, but yeah. the economy was not strong in 2017, yeah. yet they performed yeah. well. Look, they've performed well over a sustained time period, and, and you will know far better than what I do. Climb on an aeroplane nowadays in South Africa, there is not one spare seat. No. There's nothing. So they've, they've, they've cut the flights to fill them up every single time you fly, no matter where you're flying to, no matter at what time. And... Aircraft industry is pure utilization. If you get a utilization below 80%, you lose money. If you get a utilization above 95%, you print money like it's going out of fashion. It's a pure utilization there. It, co- it costs you money to fly an airplane from A to B. Yeah, and no matter how many people are in it. Yeah. And if you've got only 80 people on it, if you've got 100 people on it, you make the, the extra 20 as profit. Yeah. 80 may be your break even. The Correct, extra yeah. 20 people. That's And I mean, Comair truly has done well over the years. Mm, it has. I think it's, In a tough industry, seriously tough industry. It, it's that. never reported a loss, not a full year yeah. loss. It did yeah. a half year loss yeah. once, but it's never reported a full and, year and, loss. And not many low cost airlines can claim that. And in fact, Completely. what's the failure rate? Something like 11 out of 12 of they failed in South Africa. Uh, it's, eight, it's eight out of nine or eleven yeah. out of twelve or something like that. Ninety percent. Yeah, at least. Yes. Kumba Iron Ore. Yes. China, brilliant, yep. a brilliant customer. But yep. they, I think, they're getting a little bit too China dependent. Well, the whole world's China, the whole yeah, commodity true. world's China dependent. So that's not unusual for for Kumba to be China dependent. But yes, good set of results. Thirty-one rand earnings. Thirty-one rand dividends. Massive cash flow. Twelve billion rand positive cash flow. Remember, two years ago they cut the dividend too. Nothing, yeah, and they were not on the verge of bankruptcy, but they were in serious trouble. Mm. They what, could, be, what could you have bought? You could have bought twenty-five at, bucks. You could have bought them at twenty-five bucks, and, and you would have at four hundred. What's it today? Is three hundred and thirty yeah. odd or three ten or whatever? If you bought them at twenty-five, you'd be getting a thirty-one round a share. Yeah, but to get to twenty-five, they fell from six twenty. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. True. So that is just typical of a cyclical commodity company. It is, but Kumba, and also I suppose to the courage of Anglo-American to hold on to, yeah. um, what, what may have look they were keen to, to sell when they were when they were almost bankrupt, but then they were. but then the moment the commodity cycle turned up, they said, oh, hang on a second, no, maybe we're not going to sell this one. Yeah, and, and they, they were right. right. They, yeah. were, they were right not to. But if the conditions at the end of 2018 had have stayed around for another six months, they would have been forced to sell them mm. because their debt was spiralling out of control. But that debt's back under control, isn't it? I oh, mean, yeah, oh, yes. Anglos yeah. is very look, much back, look, back, in, back in the game. Nothing ever stays the same. But if everything stays the same as it is now by the end of this year, beginning of the year, this year, beginning of next year, there will not be a commodity company with debt. They will all have excess cash, the whole lot. And this is after them being virtually destroyed by debt. 
And once again, it just shows you what a commodity cycle is with the emphasis on the word cycle. Most certainly is. We're in the upcycle right now. Let's yes. enjoy it while it lasts. Wayne McCurry from Ashburton Investments, tonight's market commentator. I asked you earlier, who is threatening an advertising ban against Facebook and Google and a whole bunch of you getting it right? Um, Ron and Derek and Anthony and others. It's Unilever. It's threatened to boycott Facebook and Google if the companies fail to efficiently police extremist and illegal content. Unilever saying the time has come to redefine what is a responsible business in the digital age. They're worried about the creation of a swamp. Uh, I like the name of the chief marketing officer. His name is Keith Weed. And Mr. Weed is very judgmental. He says uh, that uh, these companies are to blame for creating a swamp in which fake news and criminal content are being circulated. And he's right. And it's good. Maybe the commercial imperative will force Facebook and Google to be a bit more responsible. The Money Show. Your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, Passenger Fenta has responded to the call, and so Passenger Fenta will be boarding the Money Show Express as we talk about a record first half for Comair, which is running BA in South Africa and Kalula.com. Made 203 million rand in profits, just uh, two percentage points more than the previous year. It's mostly about packing as many people as possible onto every flight, but 13% of its business now comes from its non-airline business. It includes some training, meals, and, and, and the like. It also runs the slow lounges. Uh, Eric Fenter, Comair Chief Executive, on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. You've had a great year, aided by lower oil prices, Eric Fenter, but profits hardly grew. What actually did hold you up? Uh, generally, the biggest constraint has been the economy, and we've actually seen a shrinking in, in travel in many sectors. Um, so that's been the big barrier. Um, obviously, you know, as things are progressing at the moment um, in, in the other news today, uh, maybe that's the, the end of the constraint, but yeah, we have had a very tough economic year, and that's been a bit of a, con- a barrier. Our occupancy levels are well below international standards, so we are the, the industry in South Africa is flying at about seventy-five percent occupancy, whereas it's, uh, globally the average is around eighty-five percent. And then you have got the likes of Ryanair at ninety-six percent, but we're not we're not aiming that high yet. But um, you know, it means we're underutilizing our assets. We're not getting the kind of uh, the kind of benefit that we should be getting out of the new aircraft. So we do need that economic growth. It's really it's critical. Are you getting substantially better occupancies on Kalula.com than on British Airways? Uh, actually, very much the same. It's it's really just a function of pricing. So um, it's very much a balancing act as to you know how how far you drop your prices to get your occupancy level to reasonable um, uh, in reasonable number. But um, you know, having said that, we're still we're still sitting at uh, you know slightly higher on Kalula, about four percent higher than on BA. But it's not enough to really say it's a massive differentiator these days. Uh, have you got too much competition? We see Fly Sapphire has outlasted many of its previous uh, many previous attempts at, at coming into competition with you. Um, they are, yeah. are are a rigorous competitor. Mango is being very aggressive in its uh, pursuit of you as well. Yes, uh, well, I wouldn't say there's too much competition for, for the market. There's just not enough uh, growth to actually fill that additional capacity that's come in through the competition. So I think, you know, again, it, it's it's a function of just not having the GDP growth to fill up that expansion in the market and in capacity. But, um, you know, maybe in the next year or so that will actually uh, be corrected. We hope so. Uh, we're quite positive regarding the, the sort of pent-up demand in the market because we have seen this contraction, of particularly of leisure travel, but also more recently of corporate travel. 
And we're really getting that sensation that people are, are just holding back on travel because they then have got the confidence as to how much, you know, how well their business will be doing next year, how much they'll have to spend next year, et cetera. So they're just saving and holding back. Um, so we do think there is quite a lot of pent-up demand, and we just need that, that sort of positive sentiment to start coming through uh, to get the spend going again. How much does a water crisis in Cape Town, for example, affect travel to, to Cape Town? Um, turning to Uber drivers recently in the Western Cape, suggesting that there was a lot less domestic travel over the Christmas season, for example, to Cape Town than in previous years. Yeah, we didn't actually see any reduction in, in uh, travel to Cape Town over Christmas. Uh, it was actually the largest volume of passengers we ever carried. Um, so we certainly haven't seen any constraint there. I think we are starting to see a lot more meetings being scheduled for Johannesburg. So we're finding people traveling up to Johannesburg rather than people in Johannesburg traveling down to Cape Town. Um, so we, we're hoping that you know that balance will occur and that we're not going to see a reduction in total travel on the Cape Town route. So far, there's no sign of reduction. I mean, you've managed to prove Warren Buffett wrong. I know nowadays he's a big um, investor in Delta and I think in Southwest Airlines in the US. But many years ago, he so famously said that the airline industry was a dead-end industry, that if, the, if uh, the, there'd been uh, a capitalist at Kitty Hawk when the Wright brothers took off, he would have shot down Orville Wright, or was it Wilbur, <laughs> and he would have saved the world billions of dollars. Um, in failed yeah. airlines and experiments, but you have consistently defied the airline model. You've, you've once, I think, um, seen a decline in earnings, and that was at a half-year period. You've never, not once yes. in more than 50 years, seen a decline in full-year profits. Yeah, and um, much to our own surprise, in November of last year, we actually ended up fifth on the JSE in terms of uh, returns to shareholders over a five-year period. So, um, but despite all of that, you know, we're still trading at a PE of six, which is a bit disturbing if you think of, you know, American carriers and, and the, the European low-cost carriers are now trading at PEs of 20. So, unfortunately, the, the sort of investor view of airlines in South Africa hasn't caught up with the Warren Buffett view. Um, so, I think we're a bit of a bargain, but whether that's going to turn around in the future, we'll have to wait and see. Are you concerned? I mean, everyone wants the, the industry to be as healthy as it possibly can be, but that you do see a turnaround and restructuring and more of a commercial approach by SAA in this market? We certainly hope so. You know, we've seen so many of these plans come and go that I must say we haven't got a huge amount of faith in anyone getting it right uh, this time around. It's, I think it's plan number 13 now, as far as I recall. But, um, yeah, we hold thumbs. Uh, I, I think one of the big changes now, obviously, is that there's a huge amount of pressure to actually operate commercially and not uh, not rely on, on further bailouts, although they probably will occur. Um, so hopefully there's just more pressure than in the past, and hopefully that's what will make the difference. But I think the, the, the ability to actually turn that airline around is going to take more than a miracle. So... You know, wish them the best of luck, but I think it's going to be a very tough job. I mean, the more successful they are, and if they become more commercially aggressive, it does lead to pricing opportunities in the market, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the you know SAA alone needs a significant price increase on on average fares to get into profitability, um, which will obviously have a, a significant spin-off for us as well. But um, you know, in the process, they might lose uh, a lot of passengers. So I, it's going to be tough to see if they can actually pull it off. Uh, I think it's it's a bigger challenge than what um, most people, including the new CEO, anticipated. I mean, forty-five rand a seat. I think that's the the profit price that you told us last time we spoke. Um, for every flight that goes, you make an average of forty-five rand, no matter which, whether it's a flight between Joburg and Durban or Joburg and Cape Town. Uh, are you still in that ballpark of profitability? Was that improved? Oh, we we we're doing wonderfully now we had 69 rand a seat 
So that's um, that's a very so. dramatic <laughs> that's a very dramatic increase in margin though. How, how um, have you done that by managing um, the number of flights that you're doing, or how are you working that? Uh, it's a, it's a huge combination of factors. Um, you know, it, it obviously the the profit number is the, is the function of both of the revenue and the costs. So with the fleet upgrade, we're constantly getting our costs down. So a lot of it is coming through efficiency. Um, some of it's coming through a slow but sure uh, increase in selling ancillary products, so selling the hotels and the car hire and all the other bits of it along with the seat. Um, and then, of course, as we're growing the other businesses, we've kind of pulled it all into one big pot. Uh, so I think if we took the other businesses out, that number would come down a bit. But it's, it's, it's all this, the one big pot that's, that's contributing. Um, so it's all the other bits and pieces that we're selling in, in association with the seat and not just the seat on its own. Eric Fentup, Chief Executive of Comair, flying high. Comair with its best half in history, uh, 203 million rand in profits, two percentage points more than last year. Everything going in their favour except the economy and the fact that there are uh, there is a decline in the number of people who are flying. On average, their planes, I'm saying ships, their airships, their planes are 75% full, global average around 85%. And in the low-cost space, you can get as high as 96 if you're a Ryanair. They're nowhere close to that, um, but it does provide an opportunity for growth. It does provide an opportunity to see that valuation go from six times last year's earnings and that's what they're hoping for. And from a profit of 45 rand a year ago to 69 rand a seat. It's not a huge amount of money by any stretch of the imagination considering how much can go wrong on any single flight, but it's a huge improvement. Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter. At Bruce Business. Iron ore is one of our major exports. In fact, it's a huge part of our trade relationship with China. Kumba, big beneficiary of a recovery in iron ore prices and that demand from China. Temam Kwanazi is the chief executive of Kumba Iron Ore. Your, your controlling shareholder, Anglo-American, must be very pleased with you right now, Temba. We believe they are. I mean, given the significant uh, cash flows that uh, we are generating, yes, Bruce. You would believe they are. You don't get calls from Mark Kirifani praising you and saying, okay, Temba, this is the way we're going to grow this business further. Um, Mark Mark is very happy and very <laughs> appreciative of uh, uh, the turnaround he's seen in our fortune. So, yes, they continue to be very supportive to us. I mean, it's a full year dividend of nearly 31 rand. It's a huge turnaround from the dark days where iron ore prices were falling and demand was coming off a cliff. But the, the environment has changed quite dramatically for you. Just give me a sense of how that environment has changed in terms of the demand for the iron ore that you produce. I think um, we see it as a positive. I mean, we see a change to uh, higher quality iron ores where the steel mills are pushing for bigger blast furnaces. They are driving productivity over cost. So therefore, the demand for the higher quality iron ores, of which we are a player, given our high quality products. So, so that bodes well for us. Obviously, this is also uh, driven by some of the measures that have been taken by the Chinese authority around uh, cleaner air and their drive in terms of the uh, pollution drive. What we've also seen as well is that coupled with, obviously, the uh, rising in demand, which also has got to do with uh, investment growth, is that the seaborne supply uh, is not strong as it was going back uh, five years ago. So obviously that also bodes well for higher, for higher prices. 
Um, and when it comes to quality versus quantity, I mean, places like Australia, for example, it's almost like it's swept off the desert floor. You've got to make an effort to dig it out, and you've got greater distances to cover to get it to market. You're not necessarily as profitable as some of the Australian um, mining uh, producers are, but um, does this quality then matter when it comes to um, fighting the volume game? It does, because what it does then is that from a margin perspective, when you then uh, build in the premium that you get, so the premium that we get for our iron ore content and the premium that we get for our size fraction, given that our product is two-thirds lump uh, versus a quarter for our peers, that, that, that makes a difference. Lump, uh, sorry, lump. I mean, this is what this is big lumps of iron ore as opposed to more of a a fine granular sort of iron ore, and that's preferred, is it? I I wouldn't call it big lumps. I mean, you're probably talking about you know a size fraction of about 25 millimeter in terms of lumps. (laughs) No, no, it's not big lumps of, of, of ore, yes. Um, okay, but but the point is you've got more of this lumpy iron ore than your rivals do, um, and that, that puts you in big demand in China. But you're concerned about your dependency on China. 63% of your sales go to China. You'd like to see that reduced and uh, have a more diversified client base? No, I wouldn't say we're concerned about our dependency on China. I mean, China will continue for the foreseeable future to be a big part of our, um, our sales uh, portfolio. What we are saying, though, is that we are encouraged by the work that we've done in terms of growing our volumes in other geographies. And obviously, some of this, particularly in Europe, was, uh, came about as a result of the Samanco incident, which took out about 30 million tons of uh, a product, which obviously gave us the opportunity to, uh, to grow our, our sales in Europe and also in the Middle East. Uh, what are the opportunities for you to diversify away from, from iron ore, being iron ore de- uh, dependent? Uh, look, I mean, we, 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 we obviously, having uh, talked about our strategy going forward, we are still in the main very much and uh, a pure iron ore play. What we have said, though, is that in addition to improving our margins and improving our life of mine through our uh, um, uh, projects around the low-grade uh, conversion to high-grade, we would opportunistically look at any opportunities to step up from where we currently are. But this has to make sense. I mean, it's got to be very accretive, and it's got to be in line with our uh, overall strategy. When, when you look at the at the world of iron ore and you're looking at uh, the steel mills around the world, I mean, South Africa at one time had a booming steel industry and it all went very, very quiet. I mean, how much are you selling in South Africa of the iron ore that you produce? We are still selling about um, probably three, three, three million tons of the um, 40, 40, 40, just under 40. 5 million tons of, uh, of, of, of products. So about 8% of your sales then are in South Africa. And, and, yeah. and, and is that deal that you had with ArcelorMittal, it was cost plus, uh, a cost plus arrangement, is that still on the cards? Is it, is it still a productive uh, relationship between ArcelorMittal and yourselves? It, it, is, it, it, it is very much uh, a productive relationship. Clearly, um, they have the opportunity to take more products uh, they've obviously had uh, uh, challenges uh, in terms of their cost base, but as far as the relationship is concerned, it's a very productive one.
Temun Kwanazi, the Kumba Iron Ore Chief Executive on The Money Show. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. It's a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, what an interesting day it has been. It's been a pretty unfulfilling and unsatisfying day in many respects because we do know that the ANC, despite the fact that the president has done nothing wrong, quote, unquote, to Ace Mahashule, who is the Secretary General of the ANC. And he, but Ace Mahashule is right. The president has not been convicted of a crime in a court of law because he's manipulated the process so successfully for so long that it's been impossible for him to be prosecuted. So let's create the space for him to defend himself. And he's often said he'd love to have his day in court. Let's make sure that he gets his day in court so that we can absolve him of all of the wrongdoing that he is believed to have committed. Let's clear the guy's name. Let's help him out. Let's do the man a favor. But the ANC um, announcing today that it is recalling the president. And that was interesting. Dodging and ducking and diving and not giving us particular time frame, however, means that breaking up is a very, very hard thing to do, it would seem. Do you remember Seinfeld? Great comedy series. Jerry Seinfeld, what a legend. Do you remember Jerry's friend, George, the podgy one with the glasses, George Costanza? Well, there's an episode where George has resolved to break up with his girlfriend, Maura. It's a funny name, but yeah, Maura. Sorry if you call Nora, by the way, but it's, it's a funny name. Um, and uh, Daryl Bristow-Bovey tweeted this today to illustrate how difficult a time the ANC is having in its recall of President Jacob Zuma. Listen to George trying to break up with Mora. <coughs> Mora, I, uh, I want you to know I've given this a lot of thought. I'm sorry, but we, uh, we have to break up. No. What's that? We're not breaking up. We're not? No. All right. Uh, And you can just imagine that so Ace and Jesse went off to uh, deliver the letter to the president this morning. And Ace and Jesse are George and President Jacob Zuma is Maura. And he's like, no. I'm not going to do it. What are you going to do about it? It's that kind of standoff that we're seeing in South Africa right now. It is bizarre. The president expected to make some kind of statement tomorrow. And his statement could be, well, yeah, yeah, of course, I'll step down eventually. I mean, I offered Stephen Critters, my colleague on 702, a hundred rand note today. And he was very excited. I said I'd give it to him when I was good and ready. Um, he's not going to get it. And I think that's the same sort of approach. It's an extraordinary state of play in South Africa, right? Um, he's often, President Jacob Zuma has spoken about his loyalty to the party. He's spoken about serving at the will of the party. The party no longer wants him to serve. Will he do the honorable thing and step down tomorrow? There are very few people who believe he will. I cannot wait for him to prove the naysayers wrong. The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield. Andy Rice, the branding and advertising expert, is on show in studio this evening. Brand Zuma. Well, before we get on to Brand Zuma, I thought that was an interesting little snippet to play on the eve of St. Valentine's Day, all about breaking up. <laughs> I didn't, it didn't occur to me. Not one moment. didn't occur to me. Um, um, there'd be lots of those, I'm sure, when people, yes. do, their Valentine's expectations are not met. Because Valentine's, as a brand, has got people where it hurts um, as, as a brand because you've got to perform on Valentine's Day and if you don't perform well, there is not enough care there's not enough love and not enough attention I think it's the greetings card industry and the cut flower industry just keeping one more peak in their sales program on the go 
Does anybody buy Valentine's cards anymore? I mean, I may be exposing myself. <laughs> but does anybody buy Valentine's cards anymore? 31702 I can't tell you when last I went into a card shop. Well, they're digital now, you see. You, you, send, but you, you, send, you cannot, I'm sorry, but you, uh, unless you are a particular kind of millennial, you cannot get away with a digital greetings card for Valentine's Day. That's beyond cheap. That would explain the black eye you're sporting today, would it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, well, life is peaceful. Um, so, Andy Rice, brand Zuma. Um, it, it, can, it, can it recover? Or does it uh, have any history to recover from, to be honest? Um, no, I don't think it can recover because uh, the, the momentum is so great already. But, but is there any need for it to recover? Because post his eventual departure, what role will it play in society and in politics anyway? Very little. Mm. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a big issue. Yeah, and I mean, whether or not five years from now how people feel about President Jacob Zuma and his legacy at the ANC and what he's done to brand ANC, um, one of the most... I don't know, has anybody See, that, done a study? That's more is, is what, yeah. what it's done to the environment, the, the, the political landscape, as opposed to his own personal brand. Yeah, and for, for, for the new management of the ANC, yeah. um, as to restore that brand in time for, local, for, for general elections, which must occur yeah. at some point in the next 15 or 16 I, to 18 months. I'm sure Cyril is sitting there saying, yeah, thanks, Jacob, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's kind of, it's so much easier to take something that's broken than something that's working really well. So I don't know if he's in that much of a bad boat because he doesn't have to do too much to really shine. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's talk about your heroes and zeros. Okay. Elon Musk do a Richard Branson on steroids. Absolutely. I mean, there is a game advertising called Out of Home, which is primarily... <laughs> <Out of space>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is primarily uh, billboards and posters mm-hmm. and those kind of things that the name would suggest to the sharp-witted out there that it's stuff that's out of home. Now, taking a, uh, your brand into the solar system and sending it around Mars and, and making it endure for literally billions of years is taking out of home to, a, to, to new heights, metaphorically and literally. And I think that um, it takes a real uh, st- stuntman like a Richard Branson, it's a good analogy, um, to see the opportunity where normally, apparently, when you send these, these test rockets up on their first or second flights, you, you put into the cargo bay a whole chunk of scrap metal just be to, uh, to, to make the weight right. So it's like ballast in a boat. Yes, yes. And oh. uh, then if it, if it does come plunging out of the skies in a ball of flame, then at least you know that uh, you haven't destroyed anything particularly valuable. But in this case... Elon Musk has put his Tesla Roadster, his personal one, in there with a wonderful uh, dummy uh, uh, pilot um, and even a little Hot Wheels model is in there as well, apparently, and, and a thing called Arch, which is an extraordinary data storage device on which the, uh, the trilogy of Isaac Asimov novels have been stored. So there's so many different uh, aspects to this, so many points of view of the story. But I worried, actually. I thought about it and I thought... I wonder if it really is the first time this has happened. I think it's quite suspicious, for instance, that two of America's top car brand names were Mercury and Saturn. And I wonder whether someone had got there first. I mean... What is that famous star in the sky? Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're reading too much. No, do you think so? I think, I'm I think it's possible. Okay. You're, yes, you're going to, to a realm far, far away. Um, now, but, but here's Elon Musk who's building his brand. Uh, and one wonders then, is he, what brand is he building? Because is he the Elon Musk brand? Um, is he building SpaceX? Is he building Tesla? Is he building all three successfully? Because he's yet to make any decent returns for people who are pouring billions and billions and billions of dollars into his personal playpen. 
Well, I think he's trying to, to distract them from looking at the figures too closely, to be honest. So this is a wonderful story that's wiped all talk about balance sheets and delivery rates and production output uh, off, the, off the, the media headlines. And I think he's, uh, he's, he clearly is a, a pretty natural um, uh, publicity seeker. I mean, his, his thing with the, with the solar battery in Australia was a story oh, as yeah. well. So he, he, he spots an opportunity and he goes for it in spades. He does, and uh, good, good for Elon Musk. I mean, he's your hero, and it, it is the, the stroke of genius that he's exhibiting in getting, it's not exactly free advertising, but he is, he's, he is marketing himself very effectively through the actions of the companies that he runs. Absolutely, and uh, it is, in this case, almost free advertising, because that rocket was going up anyway and was sure to be paid by someone else. Um, but, you know, just it's little touches. The playing of Starman by David Bowie on the... On the uh, uh, on, on the craft as it, as it goes around Mars is, is another little touch that was quite unnecessary from a practical point of view, but perfect from a media, what they call earned media. Boy, has he earned the media coverage he's got. You've got to stand out. And so many people try cheap PR tricks and try cheap stunts, and most of it falls really flat because yeah. we're living in a very, very cynical world where we're completely aware of the fact that there are charlatans and people looking for free publicity out to get us on a daily basis. The number of press releases full of junk that arrive in our email boxes on a daily basis are extraordinary. However, when you get it right... Well, the characteristic that is common to all of the great publicity stunts is creativity. Mm. It's not mundane, it's not uh, uh, dreary and, and repetitive, it's not been done before. Every one of those great stunts that comes from an Elon Musk or a Richard Branson is characterised by very high levels of creativity, lateral thinking, deluxe. And you wonder how much of it comes from the brain of the, uh, of the entrepreneur themselves and how, much, how, how pliant they are with some great marketing executives who are going, you know what's going to be a great idea? We're going to, send, we're going to attach your Tesla to this rocket. Then we're going to blast it into space. And we're going to put the stig in it, um, and then we're going to play Starman. And Elon's just going, yeah. Where do I sign? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. Then somebody else also did say Elon Musk probably just committed the world's most perfect murder <laughs> yes. by putting somebody in the suit. Jeff Bezos, <laughs> I heard. <laughs> and sent him off with that. Has anybody seen Jeff Bezos? Um, we need to get on to zeros. Unfortunately, there's always a zero. Yeah, well, talking about creativity, and in this case, the lack thereof, there is a television campaign on at the moment for a brand called Debt Rescue. And uh, this appears to be a kind of uh, a short-term cash loan business of some kind. And it, it depicts a dinner party where Tabo Hero is one of the guests. And a chicken, a roast chicken is served. And then everyone's fighting over the chicken. It's a quite gross scene follows. Um, and it turns out that this is a tortuous way to get round to the wishbone of the chicken and saying you cannot wish your debt away so come to us and we'll sort it out now i know i know that people are going to get in touch and say but it works okay before we hear why people might think it works should we listen to it oh we've got the soundtrack yes, we please. do have the oh, soundtrack well let's, let's do the soundtrack Dead Rescue, pay what you can afford, um, which is enticing. It's an interesting payoff line. Um, I've seen the visuals of the ad, and it's, it's styled on the, on, on the same sort of basis of that dreadful come dine with me. Um, and um, and it's, it's designed to be cringy. It's meant to be feel just a little bit uncomfortable. But that's great if you're watching Come Dine With Me and you want to be cringeworthy <laughs> and, and want, to sort of want to go and scrub yourself with a bottle of Dettler and a wire brush afterwards. 
but not if you're selling a, a, a financial product. Exactly, for which you want sort of responsibility and institutional uh, longevity and other things, not not just a, a, a madhouse over a dinner over a dinner party. Um, I think you could argue, and I thought perhaps that was the way you were going to say that it stands out because it is cringeworthy. But just think how much better. We got a, a poli- really good ad. Opinion. You pay the same <laughs> yeah. price for running a good ad as you do for running a. So why not run a good ad? Yeah. Well, what makes it a bad ad though? And, and that's because there is this fine line between comedy and when comedy works at advertising, it's really, really good. Absolutely. Um, and it becomes memorable, and people then associate a, a positive feeling that made them laugh, it made them smile, it made them feel good about themselves with the particular brand in question. Um, Dead Rescue, it's it's very negative. Um, if you go, if you if you are virtually bankrupt and you are trying to resuscitate yourself. Um, should a campaign that feels makes you feel a little bit better about that process not work? Well, I just don't think it's got anything going for it in, in, in most of the measures that people would use to, to look at advertising. Is it the kind of ad you'd love to see time and time again? Is it, is it, no. Are the, are the visuals in the first 20 seconds in any way linked to the statements made in the last 10 seconds? Um, it's just generally, in my opinion, shortcut advertising. And if the agency that made it was asked, is this the best you can do? I feel sure they would say, no, actually, we, we can and ought to do better. As I say, creativity is what drives effectiveness in advertising. And a lack of creativity is one of the hallmarks, I think, of this campaign. Can I put my personal hero to the fore? May Absolutely. I? May I? The NSRI advert of the young woman in a church in St. James in Cape Town, very close to Cork Bay. Um, she's standing and making a speech at her wedding and she's missing her dad and it's set up so there's an empty seat next to her and there, you fully believe that the father is not present because dad has died and, and tragically in many families there is a missing parent at the, uh, at the wedding. You haven't seen that one? No, but I think I can guess where it's going. And um, because I told you it was an NSRI <laughs> ad. Um, and you, up until that point, you don't know it's an NSRI ad. And, and she's so proud of her dad and she wishes that she could be more like him. And what a wonderful guy he is. And the ad ends with dad in his wedding suit. And he is the pilot of the boat going through the stormy seas to go to a higher purpose. To my mind, and anybody who dares to disagree, you're welcome to, um, but to my mind, that's the greatest ad I've seen this year. Lovely stuff. Uh, emotional, relevant. Um, you want to see it time and time again. I bet, there are, although I haven't seen it myself, I bet there are little cameos, little little snippets of visual storytelling that you only spot on the third or fourth time Completely. around. Yeah. And it's just, it, it, it doesn't look like an ad. There's that old line that says, stop being stop interrupting the things I'm interested in and start being what I'm interested in. I stop making ads that look like ads. Make them look like beautiful little cameo movies. Whoever made the NSRI ad, you're absolute geniuses. It's brilliant. Good. Send me a copy. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report brought to you by Export Credit Insurance Corporation. Your export risk partner, Diana Games, is the chief executive of Africa at Work. I mean, one looks at uh, the political machinations in South Africa right now, Diana Games. Is the rest of the continent looking at us as if we're a bit of a kindergarten politically? (laughs) Yes, I think they are. You know, I think everybody's like, well... No, shame for South Africa, but actually in the DRC, for example, um, you have, uh, you know, Kabila's overstayed his welcome since the end of, President Kabila, since the end of 2016. 
um, and, and there seems no end in sight to that just yet. So um, I think we're quite new at this game. But um, anyway, it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite hard to divert our attention from that, I know. Most certainly. But, I mean, uh, but the, the DRC hmm. is trying to push through uh, a new mining code. Mining companies in the DRC are pushing back against it. Has it got sort of a ring of South Africa's mining charter about it or not? Well, I think it's uh, it's it's got it's quite clear about about what it wants, and then that is um, a lot more money. I think the problem is not really with the fact you know the old code uh, dates back to 2002, so there's no doubt that it needs to be refreshed. But um, I think the problem really is the environment in which they are trying to pass this. Um, you have this real political uncertainty. You've got an, a government that's not shown its kind of um, credentials in terms of good governance and so on. So, so the risks are high, and one of the things the code does. Is, is remove protection for, for cha- big changes um, to the tax and to the royalty regime for, for 10 years. So there's no certainty for these companies in an increasingly uncertain political environment. And, and also there's always the worry that the money that you do pay doesn't go back to the communities. Where does it go? The, the, the processes are opaque. and, and so, there's, so there's issues like that. I don't think it's just about the money. The mining companies don't want to pay more money. I think it's about the broader environment that they're trying to introduce this code in. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And the DRC, of course, needs the foreign exchange. And yeah, it's a, it's a fraught industry and a fraught environment. Um, it's really interesting to see how Nigeria is going about getting local procurement, growing local industry. They've gone as far as uh, passing an executive order in order to drive this. It's not clear how come this is an executive order rather than something legislation they're looking at or, or whatever. But I think it really is. Somebody's obviously been talking it. You've got to do more about these um, innovation and science and these areas where the world is going, technology. And I think the, uh, you know, I think it's good. I think it's a, it's a warning bell to, to companies to look at. Other companies are also looking at how they can uh, make companies, uh, you know, they, they, in Nigeria they're going to cut back on permits for people who already have skills in these areas. They're going to get companies or have to have a plan for for effectively if they're going to invest in, in science, technology, etc. So I think it's really, excuse me, a start to, to this whole kind of process. They already have strong local content legislation in the oil and gas sector, which is a critical issue in Nigeria. So, and technology is fast rising as, as a sector. So I think it's good that the government is looking at it. I, I haven't seen the detail of how it will be applied. And I think that's always the devil in the detail because the, you know, a lot of these countries have these kind of mechanisms, but they don't apply them very well and, and they don't get the best possible benefit as a result. So let's see how this goes. But I think it's important to mention it because companies do have to really start thinking about doing a lot more than just trading in, in these countries. And then we're very familiar with the fact that VW has been a long-term investor in South Africa and they're an absolutely pivotal part of the Utenag and Port Elizabeth economies. But now it's interesting to see VW um, looking to, to build cars in East Africa. Well, they've already got a plant um, it's been going more than a year now in Kenya, um, building polos, as I recall. And, and they've now been a year in the making a deal to, to build cars in. Uh, and it, it seems like a small market. It is quite central. But um, uh, it's interesting. They, they really cite good governance. Oh, 
Gyna Games. Unfortunately, um, a cell phone signal letting us down there. Let's rather than put you through the, tro- tro- the torture of listening to the cell phone signal, Gyna Games telling a great story about um, as Chief Executive Africa at work. Uh, VW, a $20 million VW factory beginning production in Kigali in the next few months. It's going to produce three models as far as I understand it. Kenya's been doing the polo after uh, VW set up manufacturing in 2016. They're going to create a thousand jobs. It's really nice to see. They're going to do a large SUV, a hatchback polo, and the Passat sedan. They're going to manufacture those in Kigali. Um, $20 million plant being set up there by Volkswagen, which is good to see. Um, Thank you very much. Diana Games, the Chief Executive of Africa at Work. The Money Show. The Science of... If there is an upside to the drought in the Western Cape, it is the fact that uh, many, many people are now valuing water a lot more than they did even a year ago. Six months ago, suddenly the reality has bitten that the water could run out in Cape Town. That reality dawned in January as uh, Cape Townians were told that April was going to be day zero. And then farmers uh, further upstream um, in the Overbergs region released water from their catchment areas into the Cape Town system um, and that pushed day zero out to May and today um, we see day zero as a result of uh, greater water supplies coming into the Cape Town system from further upstream plus a massive cut in consumption from over a billion litres a day last year this time last year. Cape Townians are consuming just over 500 million litres of water a day Um, the day zero bug is bitten and it's changing people's habits for the good. Fabulous picture Hugo Fenica, thank you for your fantastic picture on Twitter this evening of you and members of your family catching water in buckets of, of, uh, of a roof at your home. I see a beautiful stone church in the background. I can't place it exactly, uh, but you might be in the city centre of Cape Town looking at that picture. Could you be? Um, but yeah, catching, uh, catching water in buckets. And people are truly beginning to value water in a way that's nev- not happened uh, previously. And uh, it's nice to see. It's the science of bottled water this evening. John Weaver is the chairman of the South African National Bottled Water Association. I didn't even know there was an association of bottled water providers. It suggests that you are something of a force of an industry, John Weaver. Hi, good evening, Bruce. Yeah, we've actually been going for 21 years and I've been chairman for that whole period. Uh, Were you once a geography teacher at John Ross College in Richards Bay? No, but my young... I think my youngest brother was, David Weaver. Oh, David Weaver. Okay, well, um, Gary Oberholz, who's my colleague, said, oh, he was taught by Mr. Weaver, who was a geography teacher. And I just thought your interest in water may have made you um, that guy. You're lucky because Gary was never a very good student, I'm sure. Um, So (laughs) uh, as an association, um, you've been around for the last 21 years. Uh, The purpose of the association, these things usually emerge from some sort of lobbying activity or some sort of political pressure. What was the genesis of the Bottom Water Association? Yeah, we started 21 years ago. What happened? I'm, I'm a hydrogeologist. I, I'm not a bottler. Um, what happened then, uh, one, of the, one of the big bottlers, uh, the guy running it, he saw the need to develop sort of quality standards for South African bottled water. And the other, other smaller bottlers, they were a little bit suspicious of his motives for starting an association. And so one of the smaller bottlers proposed me as a, as a neutral chairman. Um, I said, yeah, okay, sounds, sounds fun. And uh, 21 years later, I'm still chairman. And as a hydrogeologist, your job is to find water in rock to uh, determine where water is and perhaps to siphon it out. 
Yes, exactly. And the last the last two months has been crazy for me. <laughs> I'm supposed to be retired, but uh, I've been working literally full-time. This week is the first little break that I've had. Well, I'm delighted that you've had that little break. I mean, did you, when you, we'll get onto bottled water in just a second, but your assessment of uh, the water crisis in Cape Town and the frenzy of activity as people are sinking boreholes wherever there is a chance of an underground water source and, and the big projects that the city of Cape Town itself has embarked upon to, to tap into aquifers. Yeah, look, yeah I, I, I strongly support the sinking of your own borehole. I had one when I lived in Somerset West. Um, it makes life a lot easier and a lot, uh, a lot, a lot less expensive, um, uh, especially as my wife was a landscape gardener at the time. Um, so I support having your private borehole, um, especially if you want, if you're a person who enjoys your garden and loves to sort of spend the weekend in the in the in the, in the pleasure of your garden. Um, I, I I've I've yet to hear of any major impact on the groundwater resources. So. Uh, well, what does your experience tell you about the about the the nature of underground water? Because there is a concern that um, you know you could you could lower water tables and you could then impact the, um, the the last sort of emergency backup of water in the case of disaster persisting. I'm I'm very uh, what's what's the word equable about it. I, I'm I'm very relaxed about it. Uh, Department of Water Affairs is not as relaxed as me. They've just brought in regulations uh, cutting the use of domestic water by 45%. Um, I've, I've yet to understand why they've done that. Um, but, you know, those sort of things are ongoing discussions. Um, that, that, in fact, is... Uh, possibly impacted the bottle water industry, but we'll get to that maybe a bit later. Sure. I mean, and then very briefly, I mean, tapping into aquifers and, and on, on a large scale, um, I was chatting to somebody in the Western Cape government the other day who was saying, you know, that the, the days of large-scale dam building are over. The future is about tapping into the aquifers and ensuring that you replenish those aquifers in the wet seasons. This is going to be the future of water um, for Cape Town for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, I, when, when I was uh, when I was working full time, I was with a CSR in Salimbosh, and uh, we were very involved. We 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 actually co-managed the Atlantis Aquifer, which is one of the three aquifers, and the whole of Atlantis got water from 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 there. But subsequently, a pipeline was put in, and 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 the and the and the, and the well fields fell into disrepair, and now they're being renovated. Oh, uh, we've known about the. Um, the, the Cape Flats Aquifer for oh, 40 years now. We've known how much water is available. And um, I was on the original team starting on the, on the Table Mountain Group Aquifer. Um, I, th I believe the Table Mountain Group has got a huge amount of water. The, the big trick will be just to how do we access it uh, um, because, you know, the Table Mountain Group Aquifer, they're up in the mountains. It's very difficult to get drilling rigs in there. And that's the great difficulty, but those mountains are like sponges. I mean, you just watch them um, get wet in winter and they start oozing by July. There's water running off the mountains in every conceivable space. Um, and the, the nice rains that you've had in Cape Town over the, the, the last uh, five or six hours, uh, again, help the people who go with their, their five-litre bottles to every trickle of water coming off the mountain to, to get their top-ups. Exactly. And, and the other thing to bear in mind is that the Table Mountain Group aquifer is about a, it's, it's, it's a thousand to a thousand four hundred meters thick. So it's, it's, it's an enormous volume. 
um, but the big trick, as I said earlier, is to, is How to access it. How do you access it? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you're the hydrogeologist. Uh, come up with a plan, please, if you would. Uh, and we'll, we'll ask you at the end of the show how you're going to manage. Um, when it comes to bottled water, I mean, 21 years ago, bottled water wasn't really a thing. And then it became very trendy to have bottled water. And then people kind of started going off bottled water once again. and sort of been, it's, it's, if I can use the term, ebbed and flowed a little. Yeah, um yeah, there was a huge in, in the first five or six years that I was chairman. That, I mean, the business was growing at twenty five percent per annum, albeit off a low base. Um, then we went back to normal times, around about sort of four to six percent per annum, and it's been growing ever since. There's there's never been a year when sales have dropped. And uh, I just you know for the show, I asked uh, our, uh, Charlotte Metcalf, our technical manager, to get some figures for Cape Town, for instance, and. Uh, if we look at Cape Town, the fourth quarter of 2016 to the fourth quarter of 2017, grew at 22%, which is double that of the national growth. So the national growth is 10%, that and that sort of growth in the in the summer period. So you know, bottled water is not slowing down. No, and I would imagine that the first quarter of this year is going to show panic buying um, in the Western Cape. I mean, just talking to lots of people in that part of the world, um, one gets the sense that um, people who can afford it are sort of going to their supermarkets the day the water truck arrives and buying as many pallets as the retailer will allow them to have. Yeah, the um, the uh, the figure for the moment, because we haven't finished the quarter yet, is uh, up by 45%. <laughs> sure. I mean, and, and again, the base has risen quite substantially year on year. So, I mean, yes. you're setting nearly 50% more water just in this first quarter of the year, as people do then stockpile in the event of calamity. What happens if calamity doesn't strike? What are people going to do with all this water? Well, what's the shelf life on a, on a, on a five-litre bottle? Uh, it's about a year or so, I think. But uh, no, it's no, it's much longer. Uh, okay. we, we put on best before dates because it's a requirement of packaging. But uh, in the bottle, as long as you store it, say, in a cool place in your garage and put a blanket over it, so out of sunlight and light, I could last five years. Oh, no really? Problem. Okay. I mean, that's oh, a, yeah. that's a good tip. That's a very good tip from just, hydrogeologist John Weaver, chairman of the South African National Bottled Water Association. How much water do we bottle in South Africa every year? It's sitting just over 500 million litres. So as much as Cape Town consumes in a day is put into bottles in a year in South Africa? In the total South Africa. Mm. And just, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, because, you know, people bandy about numbers, 500 million litres, sounds an enormous amount. To put it in perspective, I've, I've worked it back to uh, to farming practices. It's That's equivalent of the water you need for one and a half golf courses or what you need for 40 hectares of export fruit. That's not very much water at all, is it? I mean, no, it's, a lot, no. it's a lot of water, but I mean, you, you need a huge amount of water in order to, to achieve an agricultural aim. And, and that's a nice way of putting it. Now, I need some definitions from you, please. Um, Sorry, just before, just, sure. yes. Bruce, if I can interrupt, just before we go back to that. And, and the other thing to bear in mind is, you know, if you take a 40 hectare farm, you're probably employing full time employment, about 60 people, 50 people, and, and in season, about 300. Um, the bottled water business, we did a, we, we asked a BMI research to do to get us a number about four years ago it was a thousand eight hundred people so it's it's a it's a big employment factor 
Yeah, absolutely. The bottled water industry is a big industry in South Africa, a growing industry, and with demand in the Western Cape as strong as it is, um, it's an industry that has um, got legs. I want to ask uh, John Weaver in a moment the difference between bottled water, carbonated bottled water, which I think is quite easy, natural mineral water, natural water, prepared water, spring water, um, distillation, deionization, reverse osmosis. All of these terms refer to stuff that you can get in a bottle that you pay money for, um, as opposed to opening the tap. And uh, there is a drive for those who can afford it to buy water. We'll talk all about that, Weaver, in a moment. The Money Show. The Science of... My guest is John Weaver, chairman of the South African uh, National Bottled Water Association. He is a hydrogeologist. Understandably, John, a couple of people are very grumpy with you for talking about, in, in such easy terms, fluid terms, if you like, about uh, uh, the, 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 the amount of underground water and the fact that you know pumping underground water onto your garden allows you this wonderful lifestyle. Uh, people are very protective of their water in Cape Town, particularly. Yes, um, and very much more so in the, in the past two years. Um, yeah, I, I can understand it. You know, the, the, you've got now some quite fierce water warriors, and uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions abounding. I, I remain fairly relaxed about underground water. I just wish it get used more by the by the, by the, by uh, the Cape Town municipality. Mm. Uh, you know, there are a lot of towns throughout South Africa that use groundwater as their main source of water, so it's not unusual. It's just that it's it's a lot more finickety to manage a whole bunch of boreholes than rather just open up a big from a dam. But, uh, you know, those days, apparently over, um, mm. of the big dams. Very good. Now, lots lots more questions for you then on the, the, on the principle of, of bottled water. Um, yes. Tilana and others saying, what about the environment? What about plastic bottles? If you're bottling 500 million litres of, of plastic, of, of water, most of that is going into plastic and much of that into small um, 500 mil and, and, and one litre containers. Yeah, the, you know, the, what has happened with bottled water is that the... the uh, the, the, let's call them the plastic warriors, the anti-plastic warriors. They've targeted bottled water because they say you should get water out of a tap. They've targeted bottled water as, 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 as the, big, the big demon. But it's not, you know. I mean, if, if, we, take, if we take the uh, beverage market in South Africa, uh, bottled water is only 9%. So the other 91% are you know, done by other things, milk, uh, uh, sweet and cool drinks. But I can't, get, I, I can't get sweet and cool drinks and milk out of a tap. I mean, if we had 9% less plastic courtesy no, sure. uh, of, an, of, of people opening a tap, if that tap was available to coming out of it, um, then there'd be 9% less plastic around. You can see their point. Yeah, but as a, as a friend of mine says that, you know, he's, uh, um, when, he, when he does a lot of field work, he's also a hydrogeologist. When he, when he, when he drives up the highway and he stops for a, for a, for a, for a beverage, he doesn't want to, uh, he wants to get a cold water. He doesn't want a cold cool drink. He doesn't want cold milk. He wants water. Uh, He's allowed to, I mean. No, allowed. It's allowed. It's not illegal yet. Um, (laughs) What's the difference then between the multitude of different ways of bottling water? Because you you refer to bottled water as a single category, but there's so many subcategories. And you've got bottled water and natural mineral water and natural water and prepared water. Just give me a sense of broadly what is bottled water. Let's go through it one by one. Okay, I'll try and... I'll try and uh, break it up for you. Um, it's it's actually uh, in South African legislation. It's called bottled water. It's called packaged water. Okay, uh, and, and they they deliberately changed the term from bottled water. We were very involved in help, helping a Department of uh, Health. Um, so bottled water is. I'll, I'll I'll remain calling it bottled water. Bottled water is a is a food product, 
um, these legislation follow the codex, international codex standards. So there are three groups of water. The first one is called natural mineral water. The second one is called water defined by origin. And the third one is packaged water. Now, the difference is that um, the first one, your uh, natural mineral water, the water must come out fr- either from a spring or a borehole and must be put into the bottle without uh, the bottler contaminating the water. And you're not allowed to do any treatment, any sterilization, anything like that. The second class is called water defined by origin. In that, your spring water can also fall. So if you've got a spring that's that you can't get microbially uh, low levels of uh, what's home, you're allowed to treat that water, in other words, sterilize, filter it and sterilize it. And say someone wants to bottle, uh, let's call it um, mist water from a Pumalanga. Uh, it's a niche category. Um, you're welcome. You go. Mist water. Yeah, you put up big big nets and you catch the mist and it oh, uh, drips down into. No, it's it's uh, it's done. It's done. Why? Uh, on the west coast, so you can get water. I mean, it's, it, it's rain, yes, but I mean. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't fall on anything. So you, you you're putting oh, okay. up a, a man-made system <laughs> to catch that water. But that water has got a very high microbial content. So you've got to, before you can put it in a bottle, you've got to sterilize it. And so that's what your water defined by origin. And the last one, packaged water, that is water that comes from a municipal system. And you must uh, treat that water, you must clean it up, and you must put it into a bottle and you must state on the bottle uh, your method of, of sterilization. I mean, the, the likes of Nestle, for example, I mean, if they bottle water, it is, it's simply municipal water that may have been dechlorinated and, uh, and gone through a filter process just to make it taste different to the stuff that comes out of a tap. Not at all. Not, not. at all. Nestle is a natural mineral water. Oh. The, the, the most, the most famous, uh, the most famous uh, uh, water, uh, prepared water is um, oh, Bonacqua. Bonacqua, that's them. Bonacqua, yeah. Does it make that's the, done by the Coca-Cola company. Does, I mean, it make, I, I, does it make the slightest bit of difference how it's done? In terms of the consumer. water? Yeah, do, it, in it, terms of yeah. drinking water? Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. But um, I, I, I like the taste of, of water coming from the mountains of the Cape. Uh, that's, my, that's my preferred taste. Um, but then when you, when you carbonate it, your, we'll come back to the Nestle water. Your Nestle water is absolutely delicious. It re- that, that high <laughs> level of calcium, <laughs> calcium bicarbonate with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the sparkle, it really is a, a really nice tasting water. And, and then the imported waters, I mean, there's a big pushback against a lot of that simply because oh, yeah. of the carbon footprint where you've got San Pellegrino and all of these Italian waters and uh, waters from the Alps and snow waters and all of that sort of stuff that get imported and they come at a hefty price tag. Um, should we be dodging those? Definitely. Definitely. Support South African. Support South African. Uh, you know, it looks pretty cool to have a San Pellegrino on your restaurant table, but uh, it looks even better to have a bottle of South African water there. Or a jug. Or a joke. I'm not look here. I the, the guys sometimes get quite cross with me because I I, I drink I drink tap water. Um, I've got no no problems. I will I will drink bottled water regularly, but I will I will I will not stop drinking tap water either. I mean things like deionization and reverse osmosis. I mean desalination is reverse osmosis. That's one thing yes, we do know. No, no. Deionization is that simply a process of treating it's, borehole water? 
No, it's exactly the same as, as desalination. You put it, there are various methods of taking all the salt out of the, you know, all water's got dissolved salt in it. So there's very various methods of taking the salt out. You can either put a very fine membrane or you can evaporate it and condense it or deionize it using uh, using using um, uh, resin beds. It all comes to the same. You end up with a, with a water which is not the greatest tasting stuff. And so somebody like uh, uh, Bon Aqua, what they do is they, they've got, they've got a, a tried and tested formula. They add salts back into the water so it's a good tasting water. How do they get a price point on locally bottled water? I mean, for something that costs a couple of cents a litre and comes out of a tap versus the 10 bucks you'll pay for a, for a 500 mil at the garage shop, and there seems to be a massive disconnect. It's, it's a... Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I don't... I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm not a businessman. Um, it, it, it's quite difficult. I, I, I do know the bottled water industry is, is all about looking after the scents. But what you've got to remember, a bottle of water, the contents cost maybe five cents. The rest is all packaging, marketing and distribution and profit. Yeah, and it costs money to get it out the ground. It costs money to get it purified and put into the bottles and treated and then transported to the market where you buy it. And that's really yes. the cost that, that comes to the fore. That's exactly where the cost lies. The, you know, and the other thing too is with your legislation, just by the way, uh, it sounds, sounds a very moot point, but... Uh, uh, your water out of a tap is defined as drinking water, whereas the water out of a bottle is defined as packaged water. So the one is uh, defined by the municipal drinking water standards, the other one is defined by the packaged water standard, which is a food standard. Which is safer? If I'm in a big city like Joburg or Cape Town, I've got no problem drinking tap yeah. water. If I'm in a small town in the Eastern Cape or Natal, people are going to kill me for this. I would rather drink bottled water. When I go travelling, I don't ever drink tap water. You don't. I've spent so much money going travelling, I don't, I don't want to end up with runny guts. No, you don't. John Weaver, thank you. Chairperson at the South African National Bottled Water Association. Fascinating insights. Thank you.